You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we take a look back at 50 years of journalism by the Bay Area Reporter, which covers the LGBTQ community. While it kind of started out as a gossip rag, it quickly pivoted to covering gay news in San Francisco. We ran a cover, I think it was our fifth issue of uh, people picketing in front of the federal building that said, holding signs like gay rights now or something like that. From early on, we wanted to, if not unite the community, then let everyone know what was going on and, and why it was important to fight for equality, you know, even in the 70s and, and after Stonewall. I'm Mel Baker, sitting in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. Before we get started, at the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. As part of Civic's series of interviews with the publishers of community newspapers, we take a look at the Bay Area Reporter, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, covering the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. The BAR has spanned the length of most of post-Stonewall queer history, from the earliest days of national activism through the AIDS crisis, the battle for legal equality in the workplace and housing, and the marriage rights movement, and now the greater expansion into the struggle for the rights of transgender and non-binary individuals. I'm speaking with the BAR publisher, Michael Yamashita, and the news editor, Cynthia Laird. Cynthia, Michael, welcome to Civic. So let's start at the beginning uh, with when the first publisher, Bob Ross, uh, printed the first issue of the BAR. It was on April 1st, 1971. Why then and why did he choose a name that had the acronym of a bar, which was distributed mostly in bars? Was that a joke? Was I, I've always wondered that about why the paper was named Bar, B-A-R. Well, yeah, that's a Great question. Thanks for having us. Um, You're not the only one to have wondered that. Um, In fact, we don't really know because there are several stories um, that we've been told over the years as to the reason why. Um, Bob Aaron Ross, right? So that's one explanation. And those were his his monogram. Um, It was also started by uh, with his friend, uh, Paul Bentley. So we could say that it was Bentley and Ross. Um, And then again, it's just the regular acronym of Bay Area Reporter. So two of those are apocryphal, or maybe all of them are, but (laughs) except for Bay Area Reporter. Um, So there you go. But those those are the the three explanations I've heard throughout. So it's maybe just a little ego involved. Uh, Also coming up with a name that isn't necessarily... Uh, didn't necessarily denote its history as a queer paper, right? You almost kind of wanted to bland up the name of the paper uh, well, back yeah, in, the, I'm not in that sure era how... to try to. That's true. And um, there were times when 
we were criticized for the name and not being explicitly, you know, the gay um, area reporter or something like this. Um, but uh, I think it was a conscious decision on their part to make it a little bit more under the radar and actually encompass the entire Bay Area instead of just naming it after San Francisco. So, um, and, and in a way, it, it it kind of was fortuitous because it really did, it ex- from the very beginning, um, there was an understanding that we'd be covering the entire Bay Area and not just San Francisco because there were um, queer communities throughout the Bay Area um, in those days. But really, it just started as a way of informing people in the bars, sort of like a gossip newsletter that developed into a print product. Um, it kind of developed and fell into that. Um, a lot of activism was going on at the time before the paper started, um, namely organizing around bars and bar owners and bar workers, because a lot of them were being harassed uh, by the police or shaken down by the police, or there was uh, so-called mafia involvement in the ownership and operations of, of these clubs. And so um around the time of Stonewall, a lot of these uh, bars had already been organizing and the owners and um, trying to um, see how they could combat this discrimination and, you know, really uh, seize political power as was uh, the goal in those days. So, um, and it just developed in time, became a weekly paper and over the years has various stages of, of development in which uh, the, the operation was professionalized, was made into a real business, um, and um, there was a concerted effort to professionalize the reporting, hire people who actually had journalism backgrounds and degrees and experience in media. So we've come a long way from just volunteering and kind of a fun uh, thing to keep people in the bars occupied and informed into something that... Um, really informs our community today um, through all the ups and downs that we've been through. So Cynthia, when you look back on those early days and you kind of look through the archive, what kind of jumps out to you from some of the early journalism that was being done as a, as a news editor, you look back in the early seventies, what were some of the things that were being covered by it as a paper uh, that kind of, you go, wow, that was pretty amazing for the era. Well, I have uh, look, been looking through the archives uh, in the recent weeks leading up to our, our anniversary issue. And um, what I found kind of striking in the early 71 and even 72 is while it kind of started out as a gossip rag, it quickly pivoted to covering uh, gay news in San Francisco. We ran a cover... I think it was our fifth issue of uh, people picketing in front of the federal building that said holding signs like gay rights now or something like that. So I think from early on, we, uh, Bob and and Paul as owners of the paper uh, wanted to kind of, if not unite the community, then let everyone know what was going on and, and why it was important to fight for equality, you know, even in the seventies, and, and after Stonewall. Yeah, we kind of forget that there was a lot going on here in the Bay Area 
before Harvey Milk came around, before the Briggs Initiative, that there was there were things going on in just the immediate post Stonewall era, and of course before with Compton's cafeteria and the uh, rebellion there among the trans community, there was just a lot of history that was happening. And what's exciting about the BAR is that it was here covering that, and really the only thing covering that for the whole time. The breakthrough that we make about Stonewall was that it was the first time that the traditional press covered a an event. And so that's why we mark it as such a big deal. But the BAR the whole time from 71 on was covering these stories that weren't necessarily getting shown in the Chronicle or the Examiner being picked up by local TV and radio. Yes, I think that's true. Um and we also covered state politics. I was just looking through the archive yesterday, actually. And um, in 1972, some judge in Southern California made a ruling that um, consensual gay sex was, was allowed. And that was on the front page of our paper, even though it wasn't immediately clear uh, from that article that it would apply locally um, but they had they, the reporter did talk to different attorneys to try to to get to the bottom of that, and I I think um, there was always kind of keeping an eye out for news of importance to the community, even if it wasn't in San Francisco in terms of uh, state laws and and state ballot majors. You know, we did a lot of the Lyndon Larouche stuff uh, later on, and and um, that was mostly during AIDS. Uh, so, yeah, I think we've always kind of had a broad reach. Why don't we jump forward to that era? So much has been covered about about Harvey Milk. I kind of maybe we can kind of gloss over a little of that because so much has been done about that, and talk a little bit about the AIDS crisis. And I think one of the things that the BAR was so well known in that time period was was the obituaries and the, the BAR publishing the obituaries. Can we talk a little bit about that? time either of you or yeah i think um there was a decision when people started dying to uh run obituaries for them because a lot of times their families had disowned them and um lovers wanted a way to remember one another and friends and fan their chosen family so i think that was a great service the paper did we still do it uh, we run free obituaries for anyone who turns them in. I know we talked to people for our 50th anniversary issue who said things like, you know, they would pick up the paper on Thursdays and that was the first place they'd go to was to see if any of their friends had passed away, which is so tragic. But yet, you know, we gave people a place to grieve and and to announce their friends' passings. Um, an important aspect of uh, the obituaries were the running of uh, the, the photographs of the decedents. Um, we almost always insisted that they um, were, the obituaries were turned in with a picture. Pictures were very important because a lot of times you would recognize people in the community or in the bars, but not necessarily know their names. And so this is a way to um, connect and to identify people who might have passed away that you just had a passing uh, familiarity with or just kind of knew from the gym, but really didn't know their names. And so this is an important way to um, keep the community informed about who was passing on 
um, during those days when we would run, you know, several pages of obituaries, which um, today seems very shocking, but it was seemed to be a normal thing, um, th three pages of obituaries at the height of it. And um, yeah, it, it still fulfills a, a, a purpose, um, keeping people informed of now a generation of those pioneers are passing from the early days of the movement. And uh, so it's, it's changed in its nature, but still fulfills a very important purpose for our community. I know in the mid nineties when the uh, protease inhibitors came out and uh, for some of us who, uh, because those drugs came out, became Lazarus patients and uh, our immune systems rebounded. There was a famous, and I remember that issue coming out, the famous no obits headline uh, in which there were no obituaries that week. And it was this sort of turning point for the community when uh, there had the number of deaths started leveling off due to the new drugs that were available in the community. And that seemed to be this really quite seminal moment uh, within, within that time frame and that time. I just remember Mike Salinas, the editor at the time, um, just constantly going downstairs to see if any obituaries had come in. And the deadline was like Monday afternoon or something. And, he was going down there up until five o'clock and, and nothing had come in that, that week, which was really surprising. And, and the first time that had happened. Um, so he assigned uh, Timothy Rodriguez to write that story. And I think we were very careful to point out that that certainly didn't mean nobody died that week. It just meant mm -hmm. that no one had turned in an obituary and, and it did give a lot of people hope. Um, it's, probably our most famous headline and um it made uh i believe cbs evening news that night with uh, dan rather if i recall correctly we kind of move from there and we jump into the era of growing work toward greater and greater uh protections for housing and for uh labor rights and then we jump into the era of marriage rights in the early 2000s we tend to think of it as this thing that just happened fairly quickly, but this was a long struggle from the late nineties onward. Yes, it was. Um, I would have to say that Cynthia deserves a lot of credit because this all transpired on her watch as editor. Um, and uh, we were actually covering the story from its very early beginnings when it was just a court case in Hawaii. And uh, it led all the way to the Supreme court eventually. So, um, and we've covered it all throughout its very long history, um, both out of state and in state. But perhaps Cynthia can speak to that because it was really on during her editorship. Yeah, there had been activists, you know, calling for same sex marriage from for a long time, as Michael said. And, and we did follow that Hawaii court case um, in San Francisco after Gavin Newsom was elected mayor, uh, he had gone to the State of the Union as a guest of uh, Congresswoman Pelosi. And he came back from that and, I guess, and decided that he was going to order city officials to issue marriage licenses. And that was became the winter of love in 2004. And mm -hmm. we had kind of gotten a little tip that something might happen, but we weren't told exactly what would happen. And so we got up to city hall that day and, um, people were just lining up 
at the clerk's office to get their marriage licenses and supervisors and other officials were lining up to officiate and preside over these marriages. And it was just a really crazy, crazy time. And I'll just never forget in the weeks afterwards, the line around city hall with all these joyful couples, um, coming from all over to, to get a marriage license. And I remember Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon became kind of the poster couple for, for many of us getting married several times at city hall Yes, during this process, as I recall. Yeah. And being honored, you know, finally for their groundbreaking work uh, in the community, going all the way back to the daughters of Belitis and, you know, being really foundational in the community. Yes. And then, you know, from there we had the state cases and, the court throughout the marriages. And then we had proposition eight, which we covered extensively in 2008. And, um, that was kind of a bittersweet election because, uh, Barack Obama won the presidency, but gays lost the right to get married in California. And, um, it was a very, uh, strange election night. But then, you know, of course that case went through the courts and, Ultimately, the Supreme Court restored the same-sex marriage right for California in 2013. And then two years later, the Supreme Court uh, legalized it nationwide. I'm speaking with the BAR's publisher, Michael Yamashita, and the news editor, Cynthia Laird. So I kind of want to move on to the modern era we're in now, where we're really talking about transgender and uh, gender nonconforming folks finally getting their day in the sun of being treated with some respect and and their issues being treated. How has the paper been covering those over the last decade or so? How has that coverage changed and how have those issues changed? I think uh, the paper has uh, covered the transgender and, and gender nonconforming community uh, for a very long time. And, and certainly in recent years, the last 10 years or so, it's really kind of seems to me like where the gay and lesbian community was maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Um, And the great thing is more people are coming out and willing to talk to us and telling us they're coming out stories or, and calling us when they're discriminated against or, or lose their job or can't get healthcare or things like that. And we've covered a lot of those cases. We covered a case back in the, 90s of this um, woman who was strip searched, transgender woman who was strip searched in the jail, and she sued the city and won uh, that case. I think most recently, like, you know, in the last year or two, the issue of trans girls and sports has has become really uh, on the radar a lot, and not so much in California, where we have a lot of laws to protect uh, transgender people, but there's like 90 some proposed laws across the country that would either not allow trans girls to play on sports teams, girls sports teams, or uh, deny trans people access to healthcare, which is just very, very frightening to me that the country is, is going in this direction and and mostly these red States. Well, Michael, you know, the pandemic has been hard on, 
a lot of small publications, but it's got to be especially hard on the BAR, which has always relied on distribution as a weekly in bars and restaurants and places that people can pick up the paper and see some of the advertising. Advertising has never done well in the digital space. So how have you been able to keep going during this whole year and now going on to 15 months or so of of not having places to distribute and yet still having to publish and then still also trying to maintain enough of a staff that you can continue to keep uh, body and soul together and keep the publication going. This has got to be a real challenge. Well, that's uh, <laughs> quite true. It's been a very challenging year to say the least. Um, I uh, it, It's been very... Um, uh how, how can i put it it's 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 just been a challenge all the way around and immediately um from the shutdown i knew that we would have to um change things up quite a bit um i unfortunately was forced to um lay off two long-time full-time employees uh one an editor and one administrative staff um that was probably one of the most painful uh, decisions I had to make among many. Um, we did experience a tremendous drop in advertising. Um, and so we really had to live within our means if we we're going to survive. And I made a commitment at the very beginning not to stop publishing, um, just knowing how difficult it would be um, even to get that started again if we ever lapsed. And of course, if we didn't go to print, then we would be losing a major revenue stream, right? Um, print advertising that did stay, that did remain, uh, mostly because we had a core group of very loyal um, advertisers. Um, we also launched a online fundraiser in the summer to meet our immediate needs to get us through the summer. Um, and so grateful that um, so many people came to our aid and we actually exceeded our goal of $30,000. So we actually realized about $33,000. And um, that was gratifying. And it helped us continue on through the summer. And, you know, we were hoping for the grand reopening in the fall. And, of course, that didn't happen and get, kept getting postponed. And But by that time, um, we had used those proceeds uh, and the time during the summer when we were... Um, working remotely that uh, we would invest that into developing our newsletter, which now we um, send out to our subscribers uh, for uh, five days a week during the weekdays. It's a morning newsletter that highlights the uh, stories of the day and some other um, information like a, a Twitter of the day and, and that kind of thing. Um, and also we instituted a membership program so that um, our readers could support us um, by taking out an annual or monthly membership. And uh, we're also um, going to be expanding into um, video. We've started a YouTube channel and uh, we'll be, we're, we'll be um, during our anniversary year, we're going to be broadcasting a monthly, starting out a monthly um, program of uh, interviews with uh, people in the community or people on staff who might have interesting backstories to show you how our journalism is made. Um, 
We're also collaborating quite uh, vigorously with other publications in the city, um, in the state, and also LGBT publications nationally. So we're really solidifying our our, our relationships with uh, these different tiers of public uh, regions of publications, uh, especially here in San Francisco, uh, with uh, websites and uh, other small public publishers, um, because we found that there's strength in numbers if we are coordinated, we share resources, we share best practices, and we also share advertising sales, which is something that we should have been doing, frankly, a long time ago. But instead of us working uh, separately, we've decided that it's better to share um, advertising sources and advertising sales so that we can each um, maximize our efforts. So there's lots to do. And I don't think we'll ever stop. I, as we've done throughout our history, uh, we've innovated as much as we can to stay um, viable using the best technology that we can adopt when it's time for us to adopt it. We're not early adopters, but once best practices are established, we um, explore those to see if those are viable for our operation. And so now finally, you know, you might think, oh, they're finally getting to the video, but we finally figured out a way to make that work for us. So as we grow and develop, you know, we, 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 we expand. Um, and so who knows? I, 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 it's just the way that I think any small business um, is looking to survive and is it's trying to innovate and try to stay on the curve. I can't tell you what's going to happen to our industry in the future. Um, and if I did, I wouldn't be running the BAR. So, uh, but I really believe that we will survive. Um, you know, they always said radio was going, was dead how many decades ago in the last century. So, um, and it's still here. So I think instead of thinking that media, uh, different media are going to disappear, I think we should think about media expanding and growing and adding to the existing media that's out there. So there'll still be a place for the BAR. We're growing more and more online. Um, our readership because of COVID has uh, tripled and it's uh, maintained. So we're really gratified. That's probably one of the bright spots uh, is that our online uh, audience has grown uh, so substantially because of this. And it's it was one of those goals that we just couldn't lift, you know, um, before this. And now it's happened. And uh, I'm just glad that more people are reading us and discovering us and um, coming back to our site that we've been able to uh, maintain those high readership numbers online. So, you know, this this might mark uh, the beginning of a transition to more online uh, publishing, which we were doing anyway. Uh, there's There are more uh, articles published online each week then we have room to fit in the paper. So now, you know, the the website itself is taking on a life of its own and we're adding to it. So it's been a lot of struggle, but a lot of different pieces really have to come together to um, really make us successful. And it's just not the, the newspaper, although people identify us solely as a newspaper, but uh, we're doing so much more behind the scenes in order to uh, survive. And I think we will. I've been speaking with the publisher of the Bay Area Reporter, Michael Yamashita, and the news editor, Cynthia Laird. I'm Mel Baker, filling in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. <laughs>